Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 250, the year 900. This show is ad-free due to member support. And as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' episodes by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Andrew, Jeff, and Amy for signing up already. It's the year 900. We've closed out another century. And the 900s are looking as tumultuous as the 800s. But before we move forward in our story about our little island, which is still in many ways at the end of the world, the BHP is going to take a moment to look at what's happening with the rest of human civilization around the globe, around the year 900. History, like society, only makes sense with context. A lot was going on for everybody, and it all has important implications for how we became the people we are today. Now, this is just a brief snapshot, a way for us to get our bearings for where Britain sits among the rest of the world's civilizations. And it's going to be a whirlwind tour. And unfortunately, there will also be some significant gaps. And I'll point those out as we come to them. But here we go. The world of 900 CE. And we'll start at home with some of the Celtic areas which have been in relative darkness thanks to a lack of sources. And as you know from the last episode, Scotland was in the middle of an upheaval. And following the death of Kenneth MacAlpin, his brother, Donald, took the throne. But he didn't live long, only about three or four years. And then after Donald's death, Kenneth had two sons, Constantine and Aid, and they took the throne in turn. Now, Constantine ruled for about 15 years, and his rule was marked by significant amounts of war with the Northmen. In fact, Halfdan's invasion of Altclude, which we discussed in an earlier episode, occurred during his reign. So in that episode, the Constantine the first I referred to was this Constantine. But after 15 years of rule and war, Constantine died, and his brother, Aid, took the throne. King Aid, however, was a victim of palace intrigue, and we're told that he was killed by his own associates within a year of taking the throne. And following that loss, we learn of how King Aokade's son of Rune of Strathclyde was potentially ruling over Pickland. Now, as for how a king of Strathclyde could have ended up in control of Pickland, well, all of this relies on an entry in the Chronicle of the Kings of Pickland. And we're told that Aokade, who was a grandson of Kenneth MacAlpin, seized the throne. And that's led scholars to suspect that if this record is accurate, then Kenneth MacAlpin had an unrecorded daughter, and that daughter married King Rune of Strathclyde, and then gave birth to Aokade. But complicating things, there are also indications that Pickland may have been ruled by someone named Gyrick. And some have argued that Gyrick may have been the child of Kenneth MacAlpin's brother, Donald. But truthfully, we have no idea where he came from. We don't even really know if he was a co-ruler of Aokade, or a successor. Scotland's a bit of a mystery that way. And as for what was going on with the other grandsons of Kenneth, you know, the sons of kings Constantine and Aid, well, we don't exactly know where they were during the period when Aokade and Garrick were possibly ruling over Pickland either. But by 889, both Aokade and Garrick were dead, and Donald, son of Constantine, took the throne, possibly after returning from exile and he began reigning as King Donald II of Alba. 
Now, later records describe him as a violent and rage-filled man, and his reign was marred by wars with the Viking invaders. But in his time, he had a son, Malcolm, and he was destined to become King Malcolm I. And it's actually through Donald, son of Constantine, that the main branch of the McAlpin dynasty would trace their right to rule. It all starts right here. But all of those wars with the Northmen were taking their toll. And in 900, King Donald II of Alba died, likely in battle. And his cousin, Constantine, son of Aid, began to rule as King Constantine II of Alba. It's messy, and if Scotland were Game of Thrones, they'd probably be in seasons three or four. And life wasn't any better across the Irish Sea in Ireland. They too were racked with internal strife. And at the center of much of the conflict was the Norse Kingdom of Dublin. After decades of instability within the Kingdom of Dublin and brutal dynastic infighting, Sitrick, son of Imar, died. And his son, or possibly his nephew, Imar, grandson of Imar, took the throne of Dublin. And Imar, the original one, was likely the same man that we know as Ivor the Boneless. So we're looking at Ivor, grandson of Ivor, ruling over Dublin. And as we reach the year 900, tensions were rising between the Norse and the native Irish. And in many ways, this was occurring due to the raids that were increasingly happening on religious sites in Ireland. And as a result, the kingdoms of Brega and Leinster were looking towards a regime change or possibly an outright exile of the occupying Scandinavians in Dublin. And in just a couple years after the dawn of the new century, the two Irish kingdoms would team up and invade Dublin. It's this war that causes Imar, grandson of Imar, and his forces to retreat into Scotland and bring war upon the newly crowned King Constantine II of the Picts. Chaos and instability were reigning in the Celtic West. Even the Isle of Man was going through some intense changes, as it too was being settled by Scandinavian forces. It's unclear exactly how this went about from the records, but by around the year 900, the Isle of Man may have been under the direct rule of the Kingdom of Dublin. And granted, we aren't yet at the point where the Kingdom of Suthriar appears in the records, basically the Scandinavian Kingdom of the Southern Isles, but we aren't far from there. The Northmen were starting to settle and entrench themselves wherever they could, and the Isle of Man was feeling the pressure. Across the Channel, in Francia, things were continuing to be just as crazy as we're used to. I mean, things weren't great under normal circumstances. Charles the Bald was a problematic ruler, and things generally were kind of messy. But his nephew, Charles the Fat, was a bit like an object lesson in why hereditary rule is a terrible idea. Charles the Fat was a sickly ruler, and that wouldn't be the end of the world. After all, Alfred was sickly, and he did pretty great. The problem, though, was that Charles the Fat was also lazy, cowardly, and inept. That is a horrible combination for just a co-worker, and for a ruler, it's downright deadly. It was under Charles's reign that the Siege of Paris happened. It was under his rule that we saw multiple Danegelds being paid out. Charles's rule was a disaster. And eventually, everyone had enough of him. And Charles's own nephew, Arnulf, led a coup against his own uncle, and it resulted in Charles being deposed. He then died supposedly of natural causes less than two months later. 
And with that, with Arnulf's rebellion, the great Carolingian Empire splintered completely. Arnulf held Carinthia, Bavaria, Lorraine, and what makes up modern-day Germany. Count Odo of Paris, remember him? Well, he became the king of Western Francia. Count Berenger took Italy. The Count of Aquitaine went to Ranulf II. Upper Burgundy was held by Rudolf I. And Lower Burgundy was held by Louis the Blind. And this parting of ways wasn't always amicable. These rulers weren't all that fond of each other, and all of them had enemies, both foreign and domestic. The continent fell to infighting. Dynasties rose and fell as they seized each other's titles, declared each other traitors, and even ousted each other from the title of Holy Roman Emperor, which they kept around, even though you could argue that the empire itself was kind of gone. Usually, it seems like it's pretty good to be a king. But in the former Carolingian Empire of the late 9th century, there's no way I'd want a piece of that. Sign me up as a cobbler or something. Now, towards the end of the 9th century, the Widenid dynasty of Italy, under Guy I, managed to secure a firm hold over the Italian throne. Berengar, who I mentioned a few minutes ago earlier, was gone, and now everything was going through Guy I. And Guy was so powerful that he eventually took the title of Holy Roman Emperor. And he managed this thanks in large part to the support of Pope Stephen V. But the trouble here is that popes don't live forever. And he died. And the new pope, Formosus, didn't really like Guy I. And that relationship wasn't helped by the fact that Guy forced the pope to crown his 12-year-old son, Lambert, as the new co-king of Italy. The pope was outraged. But he took the holy high road, and he turned to King Arnulf, and he asked him to invade Italy. And Arnulf was only too happy to oblige. You can't really get much of a better deal than an invitation to depose a child king and take the title of emperor from his father, all with the blessing of the Pope. And so, Germany, Lorraine, Carinthia, and Bavaria went to war with Italy at the behest of Pope Formosus. And it got ugly. By 894, Guy was dead. Though Lambert, who was about 14 at this point, was still the king of Italy. Though the kingdom was really being ruled by his mother, who was regent. And she no doubt took notice of the fact that they were losing this war. So the burgeoning dynasty took a chance. And they went to have Lambert confirmed by the Pope as the Holy Roman Emperor. And Pope Formosus looked at this request... And he refused. So, Lambert and his mother had the Pope imprisoned. I told you it was ugly. But meanwhile, King Arnulf was still fighting his way through Italy. And by February 896, he'd freed the Pope. And then the Pope went and declared him the Holy Roman Emperor and deposed the now 16-year-old Lambert. And this drama probably would have ended with this chapter here. But Arnulf had a stroke shortly thereafter. And at around the same time, Pope Formosus died. And so the whole Italian campaign was called off, and Arnulf returned to Germany. And by doing so, he lost control of Italy, and Lambert reasserted control over his lands, and had Arnulf's allies in Italy executed. Upon seeing this, the new Pope, Stephen VI, was convinced to proclaim Lambert as the Holy Roman Emperor. And then he went one step further, probably looking to ingratiate himself, and he put Pope Formosus on trial, 
posthumously. Now, corpses aren't very good at maintaining their innocence. So Formosus was found guilty, and his body was mutilated and eventually chucked into a river. And this treatment of the Holy Father didn't win Pope Stephen VI many friends. And soon thereafter, he found himself murdered. Stephen VI's replacement, Pope Romanus, was himself chucked out of power within a few months. And his successor, Pope Theodore II, fared even worse, serving for less than a single month. In fact, Theodore II was poked just long enough to fetch Formosus' body from the river and have it buried properly. So this whole thing was a mess. And meanwhile, wars were continuing. Emperor Lambert was still fighting against a rival in Fruli. And in 898, he was captured by that rival. And he died in captivity. And with his death, the kingdom of Italy exploded into infighting as multiple claimants sought the throne. It was chaos. But with his death, technically, Arnulf was left as the Holy Roman Emperor. However, Arnulf really only had power over Italy when he was physically there. So things were kind of in flux. And within a year of Lambert's death, Arnulf also died. And so Italy went to the teenager Louis the Blind. And East Francia went to Arnulf's son, the six-year-old Louis the Child. So, at least for the time being, as the year 900 dawns, there's no official Holy Roman Emperor. And we've got a lot of kids in charge. Meanwhile, in Flanders, Count Baldwin II, this was the son of Baldwin and Judith, and also the husband of Aelfrith, daughter of Alfred the Great, well, he found himself in a mounting conflict with Archbishop Fulk of Reim. And this was the same archbishop that talked a bunch of shit about the English to Alfred years earlier. So it'll surprise you not at all to learn that Fulk was a really political archbishop and had a tendency to dig his heels in. And the problem was that Baldwin II was an expansionist count. And that put the two men immediately at odds. And as the year 900 dawned, Reims was brought under Baldwin's control. And he ordered the assassination of Fulk. And Baldwin II wasn't done with this one assassination. He was just getting started. In the same era, we also see the first recorded use of a crossbow. It was in 851 in Francia. So at this time of massive political instability and infighting, we're also seeing new technological advancements in weapons of war. Great. Needless to say, the state of the Carolingian Empire at around the turn of the 10th century made the Viking hordes in Britain look like a picnic in comparison. And personally, I'd take the Viking picnic. Speaking of those Vikings, to the north, Denmark was being ruled by the House of Olaf. Maybe. The history of Denmark in this era is really murky. And speaking of murky, Sweden is even worse. The best we have is Adam of Bremen, who isn't 100% reliable. I mean, he's the same guy who wrote the Gesta, which, among other things, gives us the story of basically Viking Burning Man, which many historians have pointed out seems a bit too lurid to be real. So, while the Gesta is cool, no one would really say he's super reliable. However, he's about the best we've got. And from his writings, we surmise that a king ring was ruling over Sweden. But the truth is that Sweden is still about 70 years away from having a firm historic record of its monarchs. So this really is only our best guess. In Norway, Harald Fairhair was reigning. 
Maybe. Medieval writers from the 12th and 13th centuries were pretty sure that he existed. However, they were writing quite a while later, and the only potentially contemporary records that we have of his rule come in the form of two skaldic poems. And it's important not to completely discount poetry when trying to understand what happened in the past, but poetry does make it hard to pinpoint specifics. However, assuming that the skaldic poems are accurate, then his son, Eric Bloodaxe, would also be alive at the same point. And that's pretty cool, though Eric is a very controversial figure who might be an amalgamation of multiple Erics. Similarly, Harold's other reported son, Hakon the Good, doesn't appear in the record at all until the 12th century, and he might be a pure fabrication. So to tell you the truth, if you asked me who was ruling in Scandinavia in the year 900, the only answer I could give you is, I don't know, but we do have some legends that might be true, but they also might not be. Farther to the east, the Scandinavians who settled on the eastern Baltic were continuing their push further into the territory. Now, the record is spotty and controversial, but Prince Oleg of the Rus was expanding his territory out of Novigrad at about this point, and he eventually seized Kiev. And this move established the infamous Kievan Rus, who would go on to have tremendous political influence upon the region for centuries, and then would eventually be kind of broken by the Mongols. Though to be fair, they had enough internal problems that they might have fallen apart on their own anyways. But that's a ways off. For now, Kiev would serve as Oleg's capital, and from there, he would launch a number of campaigns further into the surrounding region, even going so far as attacking Constantinople. And out of that general region, we also see a Byzantine missionary known as St. Cyril, who was working in Moravia, and he developed a new script to teach the Bible to the local Slavs. And that script became known as Cyrillic, and it really began to catch on in the region. So if you wonder where Cyrillic comes from, it comes from this time period. Now along the Black and Caspian Seas, the Khazar Kingdom was in the process of formally converting to Judaism. And traditionally it's believed that the religion was selected in order to put them on even footing with their Christian and Islamic neighbors. Unfortunately for the Khazars, this conversion wouldn't be enough to save them. By the time their religious rebranding took effect, their kingdom was already in decline. And some scholars now think that this decline was possibly due to environmental changes that caused a 23-foot increase in the sea level, and thus displaced them. In the Byzantine Empire, Emperor Leo VI was getting increasingly worried about the growing power of the Bulgar Khanate. And they were the other semi-nomadic Turkic people who were dominant in the lands between the Black and Caspian Seas. And so, if you know your geography, you'll know that that puts them right on the doorstep of the Byzantines. And that wasn't sitting well with the emperor. So, he convinced the nearby Magyars to attack the Bulgar Khanate in 895. And this was a strategic disaster for the emperor. And in response to this attack, Khan Simeon raised the nearby Pechenegs, who were also a semi-nomadic Turkic people that had a history of acting as mercenaries. And they were actually currently homeless due to being on the losing side of a war with the Khazars. But their situation made them natural allies with Khan Simeon because they needed lands and Khan Simeon wanted them to go and invade the now undefended Magyar lands. And the Magyars didn't see it coming. The campaign worked and Emperor Leo's Magyar allies were forced to flee into modern day Hungary. 
And I know this all sounds really confusing, but if you're looking for a way to visualize what was happening in Central Asia, imagine a blender. And then imagine Emperor Leo reaching into it for some reason. The next year, Khan Simeon of the Bulgar Khanate drew the Byzantines into battle, defeated them, and forced them to pay tribute. It was a major blow for the Byzantines, but this conflict was just beginning for Simeon as we reached the year 900. Because he realized that while tribute was nice, what he really wanted was the Byzantine throne. He just needed to take Constantinople first. In the Middle East and North Africa, the Abbasid dynasty, which had replaced the Umayyad dynasty, was ruling. However, despite its early gains, the Abbasid Caliphate was in decline. Large portions of the empire were breaking away and asserting autonomous rule. And that's not surprising. Their empire had become as large as Rome's empire during its heyday, and they were running into similar problems that the Romans had. Attempting to maintain control over such disparate lands from their seat of power in Baghdad was proving to be impossible. And so things started to fall apart. And it all began with the Idrisid dynasty, which had set up a Shiite autonomous rule in Morocco. After that, multiple emirates followed suit, with even Egypt breaking away. And to the east, portions of modern-day Afghanistan and Uzbekistan also broke with the Abbasid central rule setting up their own hereditary rulers and largely looking like completely independent states. The power of the caliph was declining as the year 900 dawned. And religiously, the rift between the Sunni and Shiite was still continuing. And actually, a few decades earlier, in 874, the 12th imam of the Shiites had disappeared. He was only about five or seven years old when his dad, the 11th imam, had died. And following that death, the child leader immediately vanished. This event is known as the Minor Occultation. And it was a big deal, because the 12th Imam, the child, was believed to be the ultimate savior of mankind. And this belief has persisted across centuries. Even today, there are people who believe that he's still in occultation. This one, by the way, is called the Major Occultation. But the belief is that the 12th Imam will return, along with Jesus, and deliver peace and justice. To the south, in Africa, Islam was spreading into West Africa, and at around this period, the wealthy trading kingdom of Ghana was in the process of converting. Now, Ghana was one of the three well-organized kingdoms that were recognized by the Berber historian Al-Yakubi, the other two being Gao and Kanem. Ghana was a powerful and wealthy kingdom, and it served as a trading nexus, dealing in slaves, gold, and salt and the spread of Islam into such an influential kingdom in the region would have long-reaching effects. And many of these trade routes, which, by the way, crossed the Sahara, stretched so far that we even see silk from China making it into the region. And speaking of China, they were in the late Tang period, and it wasn't looking good. The early period of the Tangs was a high point for the empire. Administratively, politically, culturally, pretty much in every way, Early Tang China was a peak civilization. They were doing great. But that was also centuries ago. And now, things were getting out of hand. The government was characterized by inept and ineffective rulers, widespread corruption, terrible government officials in the imperial court, and tons of infighting. And all of this resulted in a government that looked a bit like the worst elements of the Carolingians. Regions were breaking away and developing autonomous rule. Large groups of bandits were openly operating with impunity like independent armies. 
These bandits were so powerful that they would even besiege entire cities when it suited their interests. Meanwhile, many government officials turned a blind eye to the destruction that was happening, and others actually hired some of the bandits and warlords, using them to destabilize a rival region for the purpose of advancing their own plans. This was a disaster, and as a result of this degree of instability, incompetence, and violence, China was also dealing with multiple rebellions. Most recently, people were reeling from the 10-year-long Huangqiao Rebellion. This conflict had racked the entire empire and saw the massacre of a number of major cities in China, and it was only brought to an end with the assistance of the Han and Turkic warlords. But utilizing them in this way also elevated their position in Chinese society, and this habit of legitimizing warlords was actually a huge problem for the Tang Dynasty. At around this same time, a man named Zhu Wen, a salt smuggler who served a rebel warlord, betrayed his band to serve the Tang Dynasty in their quest to quell rebellion. His work was so pivotal that they granted him power within the royal government. He had promotion after promotion. And it's with all of the power that he was granted that in 907, Zhu Wen deposed the last Tang emperor. And so, as we reach the year 900, China is right at the middle of a major political shakeup that will result in a salt smuggler becoming Emperor Taizu of later Liang in 907. Across the Sea of Japan, the empire was being ruled by Emperor Daigo, the 60th emperor of Japan. And he was a continuation of the Fujiwara clan's dominance of Japanese politics. And unlike his predecessors, Emperor Daigo was destined to have a very long reign. Over 30 years, in fact. That was a long time for a Fujiwara emperor, and the Fujiwaras were actually pretty new to power. As a clan, they weren't established until the mid-600s. However, they used their newfound power well, and they married so many of their daughters to the various emperors that by the year 800, they were a dominant force in Japanese politics, and were holding the title of emperor themselves. And so, as we reach the year 900, that dominance will continue, and will actually continue for centuries more. Unlike most of the rest of the world that we've been talking about, the Fujiwara hold on power is surprisingly stable in the year 900, and a lot of those early gains were made through marriages. So for those of you who play Crusader Kings 2, that daughter marrying trick absolutely worked in real life. Now in Southeast Asia, the story becomes hard to find again. Dating Polynesian history isn't easy, at least it wasn't for me. There isn't much by the way of written records for this era, just like the Celts, which meant that we rely almost entirely on archaeological data. Unfortunately, unfortunately, this block of time in archaeology is highly controversial as evidence is gathered and interpreted, often for the first time. What we're confident in is that this era was full of skilled voyagers and settlers. There's no way to know exactly what was happening in the year 900 in this part of the world, at least not that I know of. But I feel safe in saying that there was probably lively migration and trading happening amongst most of the islands and cultures there. But to avoid risking getting the record wrong, I'll just keep it there for now. Similarly, Australia is still in a period of prehistory where I don't feel confident that I can pin down what was happening on the year 900. But in only 200 years from now, there will be coins that were made on the continent of Africa that will find their way into a well just on the edge of the outback. And I'm sorry this is all so vague. I'd prefer if I could flesh it out more, but I don't want to wing it either. 
All I can say is that you should do what you can to support archaeology, because this field is the best shot we have to fill in the gaps in the human story. Now, across the Pacific, in the Americas, the classic era of Mayan city-states were in decline. Drought, disease, overpopulation, and social upheavals were all taking their toll. The once great city of Tikal was abandoned at around this point, as the northern city-states in the Yucatan Peninsula were rising and becoming the new power base for the Mayans. And chief amongst them was Chichen Itza. And so, we were beginning the terminal classic period in Mayan history. At about that same point, the Toltecs were settling in the Valley of Mexico, establishing their capital at Tula. Now, the Toltecs were probably the descendants of refugees from the Teotihuacan culture, which collapsed a few centuries earlier. Farther to the north, the archaeological record of the North American tribes reflects a blend of the late Woodland Period and the Mississippian Period, since the 800s and 900s were basically a transitional era. The late Woodland Period was characterized by a decrease in trade and a dispersal of population, even though the raw population numbers don't appear to have decreased themselves. So basically it's just that settlements shrank and spread for unknown reasons. And all of this dispersal resulted in the development of unique and distinct cultural practices as communities got further and further separated from each other. We're also seeing an increase in the use of the bow. But, as I said, the North American tribes were fast approaching the heavy agricultural period known as the Mississippian era. So it's at right about this point that we're seeing an increase in the cultivation of crops, and we're moving into an era that'll be characterized by an increase in trade networks, agricultural land developments, and permanent structures. But this time period also comes with all the evidence for a corresponding growth in social complexity, the establishment of firm social hierarchies, increasing social inequality, lower social mobility, and the centralization of power into the hands of a few. Basically, we're seeing all the things that we've come now to expect when a civilization fully commits to agriculture. And the people of North America were making that bet right here at this point in history. And there's so much more that's happening in the globe, both for humanity and for the world in the year 900. This was just a glance at it. Britain is the center of our story here, but always remember that it is just one of many stories. And they're all interacting with each other in ways that we are only now just beginning to discover. This is the real story of humanity. It's a story that cannot be reduced to a single nation, or one era, or one experience. At any given time, people have been building, destroying, defecting, and uniting. And it's never stopped. Each moment and each place has something to teach all of us about who we are and where we came from. That history belongs to all of us, and we can all stand in wonder at the scale and drama of it. So as we take our little island into a new era, never forget that this is just one part of a great big human world. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast, and you can join all our other communities by looking in the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. All right, it's time for another pub quiz. 
You know the drill. Question one. The Danes occupying Hartford were dug in at their fortress. They wouldn't be moved. And they had bested the mercy inferred that was sent against them. And their occupation of Hartford threatened to starve London. So Alfred had to do something. What did he do? Question two. True or false? Starting in the mid-880s and into the 890s, Athelflaed, Lady of Mercia, appeared on important documents and even jointly granted lands along with her husband. Question three. Alfred ordered the construction of a new fleet of ships according to his own design. And he decided that bigger meant better. These things were huge. And in 896, they were put to the test against a Viking fleet. How did that go? Question four, true or false? This naval battle was the first recorded naval engagement by the West Saxons in history. Question five, true or false? Edward the Elder was already being referred to as king while Alfred was still alive. Question six, what was King Alfred doing in his spare time towards the end of his life? Question seven, what was Kenneth McAlpin's ethnic background? Question eight, how was your royal bloodline and right to rule traced in Pictland? Question nine, where is the Book of Kells from? Question 10, why is it significant that Kenneth McAlpin established the cult of Columba at Dunkeld? And why is it also significant that he centralized the McAlpin lands at Schoon? All right, let's see how you did. Question one. The Danes occupying Hartford were dug in at their fortress. They wouldn't be moved. And they abested the mercy inferred that was sent against them. And their occupation of Hartford threatened to starve London. So Alfred had to do something. What did he do? He brought the army of Wessex to Hartford, ordered them to stand guard as the peasants stripped the lands of all the crops, thus ensuring that London could eat while the Danes would starve. And then he set about building a bridge protected by a double burr. The plan was to trap the Danes in their fortress. Question two, true or false? Starting in the mid 880s and into the 890s, Athelflaed, Lady of Mercia, appeared on important documents and even jointly granted lands along with her husband. True. Question three. Alfred ordered the construction of a new fleet of ships according to his own design. And he decided that bigger meant better. These things were huge. And in 896, they were put to the test against a Viking fleet. How did that go? It was a mixed success at best. Their size severely impacted their maneuverability, and so they ended up grounded and the sailors were forced to fight on land for a while. Question 4. True or false? This naval battle was the first recorded naval engagement by the West Saxons in history. False. There were plenty before that. Question 5. True or false? Edward the Elder was already being referred to as king while Alfred was still alive. True. Question six. What was King Alfred doing in his spare time towards the end of his life? 
He was translating the Psalms. Question seven. What was Kenneth McAlpin's ethnic background? Nobody knows for sure. Question eight. How was your royal bloodline and right to rule traced in Pickland? It was traced matrilineally through your mother. Question nine. Where is the Book of Kells from? Iona. Question 10. Why is it significant that Kenneth McAlpin established the cult of Columba at Dunkeld? And why is it also significant that he centralized the McAlpin lands at Schoon? Because he was merging a Gaelic saint with a Pictish religious site. And he was also merging the power base of the old kingdom of Fortriu with the new reigning McAlpin dynasty. So culturally, he was building the foundation for a unified Scotland. I hope you did well, and we'll see you on the next one.